Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The deep sea is one of the most mysterious and mesmerizing places on the planet. Inhabited by bizarre creatures living in extreme conditions, it couldn't be further from our normal ideas of life on Earth. The most exciting thing about the deep sea is that there's still so much to discover. Modern technology is opening up the dark depths and scientists are venturing further than ever before into this alien realm. Hello, I'm Helen Scales and in this special edition of The Naked Scientists, I explore the wonders of the deep with biologist Tim Shank. I caught up with him in his labs at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to find out about a pioneering research expedition he recently led to explore the deep sea around Indonesia. It's part of an area known as the Coral Triangle that's famous for the riot of marine life in shallow water. But what about the ecosystems that lurk further down beneath the waves? A couple of years ago, we realized we really don't have any information about the deep sea there. Anything below, um, much below scuba diving depth, we really don't know uh, what lives there. In that region, we know the diversity is high. We also know that there are biogeographic boundaries. And what I mean by that is there's, if you cross this line, we start to see different kinds of species. It's kind of like seeing koala bears in Australia and kangaroos versus uh, something else that you might see in, in, in Asia. So we wanted to know if the deep sea is as diverse and if there is this line that we see um, in shallow water and in terrestrial systems. So we put together a cruise. It was a couple of years in the making because it was uh, new technologies um, and uh, new people involved. And uh, the technologies were a brand-new ship dedicated to exploration of our deep oceans. And um, uh, the new new scientists involved were were Indonesians and U.S. scientists. And for the first time, we started a real collaboration in the deep sea. It's a five-year-long collaboration uh, really pushed forward by the Obama administration to bring science and technologies to countries around the world, um, to Islamic countries around the world. And so um, that's just what we did. So you had the first trip was last summer. You you mentioned that there's some new technologies. How do you go about studying the deep sea like that? What kind of kit did you have? Yeah, the deep sea is tough to study just to to begin with. I mean, normally we have deep um, submergence vehicles. Uh, These are submarines, like people can go in. Uh, Others are robots that are tethered to the surface. That are basically, you're able to uh, have high-definition video cameras on board, lighting. You know, it's very dark in the deep sea. You have to have really good lighting. Uh, and then normally they have uh, some way of sampling the seafloor, sampling the animals, sampling the rocks. That's really important. So those are the very basics. But we also have lots of other robots and things we use. That Some are autonomous. We can program them uh, on board the ship. We let them go for over a day now. They can go and traverse around the seafloor, taking pictures, making maps all by themselves. Um, and then we would just recover them and download the data. It's really fantastic. In this case, we were doing something really novel. Um, we had an, a remotely operated vehicle, so we had a robot that had a very good high-definition camera system, um, and we were doing pure exploration of the seafloor. Um, no one ever been to this area of Indonesia, north of Indonesia, um, in the Sulawesi Sea. And um, so what we did was the ROV, the, the vehicle wasn't novel in itself, but the signal that was coming off the seafloor was, was transported around the world. There were scientists in Indonesia and in various parts of the United States, um, in Europe, that were all tuning in at the same time 
we were, had Skype and iChat going, um, and as we saw live pictures come in, we could hear the pilots of the ROV on board the ship. Uh, we could hear everybody on the ship we wanted to, and we could communicate with everyone who was listening in. We had uh, also conference calls going on at the same time, so we had voice, we had iChat, we had Skype. So um, that, to me, was a, real, was a real first. And so we were able to see things in real time and say what we thought we were seeing. You know, we were all saying, okay, someone would say, what is that? And someone would say, I have no idea. Oh, that's, a, that's some fish. And then, okay, well, all right. And so what we did was we documented what's on the deep sea floor north of Indonesia, and we had some remarkable results. Uh, in short, we found very high diversity. We found diversity that, that rivals that of the, the shallow water um, coral triangle area. The region we looked at was between 300 meters deep and 5,000 meters deep. So we covered a lot of different kinds of habitats, uh, mid-ocean uh, rift habitats, a lot of deep sediment habitats. We actually found uh, wood and coconuts that were being used as habitat from certain species. Um, there's lots of wood, apparently, that falls into the water uh, in that region of the world, and, and it, it actually hosts a different kind of chem- uh, chemosynthetic community, those communities that, that live on decaying material. We think we found... Um, more than 40 new coral species and uh, even more uh, other invertebrate species. So it was a really uh, dramatic find. You say that we had this this sort of live global lab almost yeah, with all these right. people. But and, and you were in charge of, um, of this particular expedition, but you didn't actually get out on the ship. No, actually, I didn't. I, I ran a portion of it from my lab. Um, it's a 12-hour difference between my lab and, and where the submarine was. So we would work all day here, and then at night we'd, we'd do the op- operations of the ROV. And, yeah, we would we basically command it from here. And then um, I actually went to Indonesia for part of it. So I traveled, and, and through the hotels that I was in, I would also then tune in through my laptop and, and not miss anything. And then um, got to Indonesia, and we sat there at a, what we call a command center, um, it's a lot of flat screen monitors and lots of uh, communication devices to talk to everybody around the world. Um, and it was fabulous to interact uh, with our scientific partners that we haven't done so with before and, and show them how we do things. They showed us how they do things, what they know of the animals, you know, in the shallow water. It was a wonderful uh, collaboration that we, that we did. But, um, yeah, I've never done that before, and I've been able to, you know, even get on your phone and check in uh, to the expedition, and, uh, you know, it's called telepresence, and, and we were there even though we weren't there. And I believe one of the things, one of the, the features that you, you found, and, and or I don't know, if, did you find the, the undersea volcano, or was that already known about? Well, we actually, there was one that was known about and that we had some signals from that there might be something uh, called hydrothermal venting there. You know, this is a superheated water uh, that gets um, below the seafloor. It becomes superheated down there, and it rushes up toward the seafloor, and it and with it, it brings a lot of dissolved metals um, and, and sulfides, things that are kind of nasty to us, but there's animals that, that really like it a lot. And so this hydrothermal venting uh, was suspected in a certain area on this one big seamount. But we did discover other seamounts we didn't know were there. So we did a lot of mapping. Uh, we mapped an area the size of, uh, of Oklahoma, basically, on the seafloor, which is a lot. And uh, so through that mapping and through our, our visual analysis of the seafloor, we found lots of species and we found this venting area we suspected was venting and it certainly was and it was venting in an unusual way too it was um i mentioned that sulfides normally come out um they're it's dissolved into the seawater in special occasions where you have certain conditions where it gets hot enough uh, and cools fast enough you get, actually get this molten sulfur it's elemental sulfur it's yellow and gray and brown uh, different colors, but it, it comes oozing out like candle wax uh, out of the seafloor. And we've only seen that a couple of times uh, around the world. And this is this one has a lot of that. Um, it's really intrigued a lot of scientists as to why, that is, uh, why that's the case. 
And uh, you mentioned the the fact that there's a lot of wood down there, which is fascinating. Um, but there are other chemosynthetic um, organisms down there that are that are living off of these these interesting chemicals that are, that are down there on these seamounts. Um, what's going on with those? The seamount where we found this hydrothermal vents is called Kawio Barat, and we found clams in the in the outlying sediment that uh, have uh, bacteria in their gills that allow them to take in the nutrients and give it to the clam as, as the host. So it's a, very, it's a symbiotic relationship that allows them to live there. And so we saw lots of clams um, as we proceeded away from the actual vents themselves. But at the vents where the water's coming out, we, we saw a lot of shrimp and a lot of barnacles. Uh, these are stalked barnacles that, that may be, you know, 8 to 10 inches long that um, they're so numerous. It's like um, sometimes we liken it to going through a car wash. They're on every side of, the, of the, these large chimneys, we call them, like large spires, and they, they love being there. They're at the very top. They love being up into the current where they get nutrients that come in, and they're only around these vent systems. And so um, we're still trying to identify what species it is. It may be a new species to us, uh, as well as the shrimp that live there. They live there in very large numbers, and they walk right along the, the, top, the on top of the chimneys and through the through the water coming out, and uh, we may there may be three species of those. We're not sure yet. It's a fantastic find. Uh, no one has seen um, chemosynthetic fauna or hydrothermal vent fauna uh, in this area of the world before, and so it's new to us. The closest we have to the west from there is the Indian Ocean, which is a fair bit away, uh, and then we have some that's on the in the Lao Basin, which is uh, you know south of Guam. So we know some there, but this is a really sort of isolated part of the world. We now have another vent system that we found. Very exciting. So I guess there's an awful lot we still need to discover about these these habitats. Um, there, I mean, there must be more questions than answers at the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, every time we had a dive, whether it was shallow water um, or deep, we, we found something new. The amount of diversity we saw at 300 meters uh, was really remarkable in the coloration of the animals. They blended into their surroundings, even at 300 meters where it's black, pitch black to us. They seem to be using camouflage for some reason, or they have still have it. For some reason, they, ha- they haven't lost their ability to have camouflage. When you go deeper, uh, you lose that color. And when we were seeing wood at 3,000 meters, 4,000 meters, all the animals were white. They were nothing like we had seen anywhere else in the sediment or the vents or anywhere else. Really remarkable. And the thing is, with this with this vehicle that we had, we, we couldn't sample. We couldn't collect them. So we couldn't bring them back to the lab and, and dissect them and play with them and look at the morphology. Um, we just could take pictures and uh, video. And that said, the high-definition video was very um, of high resolution. And so we, we were able to get in really close and in some cases, you know, count the little hairs on the back of the shrimp that helps us identify who they are. And so that's what we're in the process of doing now is identifying who all these species are. And, um, again, remarkable diversity. So it will it will take some time. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And uh, we're still learning lots. We're still discovering so much. Um, and one of the things about the shallow water communities in this part of the world is we know that they're extremely um, under threat from, from lots of human activities. Mm-hmm. Are there threats to these deep-sea ecosystems as well? You know, it it's, would seem uh, unlikely, but there are actually many threats to deep-sea communities now. And, and the more we look, the more we realize. We've, we've known for some time that there were communities on seamounts that would that attract fish, whether it's the juvenile uh, fish or the adult fish uh, of commercially fished species. And so we've known for some time that, that trawlers will go out and rake over the tops of these seamounts, and they wipe out coral communities that, that we know are thousands of years old and will take that long to recover. And so it's a tremendous, actually, um, disturbances that we may be impacting the, uh, the deep-sea communities. And now we see in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, that oil can also have a, an impact. We're starting to see that uh, on coral communities in the deep Gulf. 
Uh, of course, we know that in the Western Pacific, there are large sulfide deposits that ring the Western Pacific uh, vent systems, and uh, there's an intense interest to uh, mine those areas, those extinct sulfides. Um, and that's actually underway now. I mean, the, uh, for the last, I don't know, at least five years now, they uh, have been uh, surveying and doing environmental impact assessments uh, in, on vent systems around Papua New Guinea, for example. First of all, you've got to learn what the animals are down there. Then you've got to think about how they disperse from one site to another and uh, if there's other sites available. If you're going to chew up one site and rip up all the sulfides where they might be living, uh, it would be nice to know if there's any other places around that are habitable uh, for them to maintain their species in those communities. And um, I know that some of the um, mining companies have gone to great uh, efforts to um, sanction off or protect some areas of vent systems in, in nearby areas. Um, it's really not clear whether that's, a, whether that's an appropriate design uh, or not, if that's going to really work. Um, but they're certainly they're partnering up with scientists that are trying to figure that out and see if those are good ways of designing protected areas in the deep sea. It's clear from our studies that, that some vent systems can recover very quickly from disturbance. There's natural disturbances in the deep sea. There are eruptions on mid-ocean ridges all the time, um, all the time meaning every decade or so, and then animals can grow fast, reproduce fast. It's uh, remarkable, actually, but there are other vent systems around the world that are actually very slow and see very small disturbances, like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and those in the Western Pacific. So there, there are some big impacts uh, that can uh, disturb these communities in the deep sea. So it seems a little bit premature, maybe, that we think we understand them enough to say, hey, we can leave a protected area and that'll, that'll help fix it up, when we really don't necessarily know that by the sounds of it. We don't know how these animals reproduce. We don't know how far their larvae travel. We don't know how fat, how long it takes to recover from a big disturbance like mining, for example. There's so many questions that I think that if we, we waited to get the answers, we wouldn't mine for decades. It'll, it would take that long. And I know that there's an effort there to try to get some of this information down. Um, but, you know, the thing that we, we have to keep in mind, too, is they're mining the extinct sulfides, not the active part, right? So they're, they're not mining the vents where the animals are really living right now in great abundance and all that. They're mining the ones that, are, that have, were active thousands of years ago. Now, what do we know about the animals living on those older extinct sulfides that were active thousands of years ago? We don't know much. There's only been one study ever done to know what's really living on those old places. And that's habitat for corals and things like that. But we really don't know. You uh, mentioned that this is the beginning. Uh, your expedition to, to Indonesia yes. this year was the beginning of a long-term project. Um, what's next for, for that project? Yeah, this was year one of, of five, actually. And we're really looking forward to working with them more. We actually have an exchange of students that are going on now, and, and we're trying to um, get their faculty over here and whatnot. And then um, we have planned another cruise to the uh, to the east of where we were last year. It's called Helmira area. It's uh, it's got we think it has uh, chemosynthetic communities there. Um, it's not venting there; it's seeping. It's coming up through sediments, so it's not really hot. It's cold uh, nutrients that are coming up. But we normally in those areas see clams and shrimp and tube worms. In Indonesia, in this area, there's a, a one-way current regime uh, that flows. Uh, it only goes one way. It's called the, um, the Indonesia through flow. And um, their scientists there really want to know if that's what's happening and if there are if the species are the same on either side of this area where this is happening. So they're trying to look for, for boundaries or barriers uh, down there um, in the deep sea. So that may be controlling diversity. Um, we're looking forward to it. Um, it'll be another month, month and a half long cruise to there. And I know we're going to find some really incredible stuff. 
Well, we look forward to finding out what they discover in their next exciting expedition to explore the deep sea around Indonesia. That was Tim Shank from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the US talking to me, Helen Scales, about his explorations into the deep sea world and how modern technologies, including the wonders of the internet, are helping to shine a spotlight into this most extraordinary and little-known realm. You can find out more about the deep sea and other fantastic marine life at the Naked Scientist webpages that are dedicated to the sea. Every month in the Naked Oceans podcast, we bring you the very latest marine science and conservation and dive beneath the waves to uncover a different ocean topic, from seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms. You can find the whole first series of Naked Oceans, including an episode all about the deep sea. That's all at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.